So let's go. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses thirteen through eighteen. Let's read together. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So as we've come through the end of 2 Thessalonians, here at the very end of the book, we have what is a customary greeting of Paul, where he tells you basically goodbye. And it's always odd to come to this passage of a, this part of a letter because it feels really personal. It feels like this is, you're kind of reading in to somebody else's comments, even in the salutation, especially in the letters where he lists off a bunch of names of people. It's like, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, make sure so-and-so has enough bread, these kinds of things. And when you have these very personal endings. But I wanted to just start this morning by reminding you that this is genuine gospel community. This is not a Christian living section book. This is not a book that was purchased at Barnes & Noble where you got to, do people still purchase books? No, it's not a book that was purchased at a bookstore where you walked in and got the book and now you read it and it just kind of is generally applicable to every Christian. This is a letter that was written in deep and abiding community with each other. So this is intensely personal. And as a result, that's why we are able to pull from it principles of life together. So let's, let's dive right in to chapter 3, verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So just note first, as for you, brothers, he starts here or the, he is concluding this book with a final instruction and that final instruction starts with brothers and we saw the same thing as a continuation of last week's instruction where it says do not let the idle stay idle among you as those who are disorderly and instead he he tells you last week brothers uh, here in verse 6 now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness so the emphasis here is these are brothers. This is a familial relationship, a family relationship. And I would remind you that you don't get to choose your family. The reason the Bible uses terminology like family when it describes the Christian community is because you don't get to pick. It's not your, you don't get to choose your team. God did that. God, you're born. You don't get to choose where or who you're born to. You don't get to choose what family you're in. You don't get to choose who's your brother and who's not. 
God does that. You get to be a part of a family. And in the positive, you get to be a part of a family. And the, the exhortation for us is that you got to love your family. And sometimes it's hard to love family. Sometimes it's hard to love family. But they're your family. You don't have a choice. The world will know you by your love for one another. So you are part of the family when you love well. No one has seen God. And yet, when we love one another, He is manifest among us. Now, He says these are brothers. So we want to talk about the idol here. Those who are, who are being lazy. And He says brothers. And I just want to remind you that it can be difficult to deal with brothers. But we do so nonetheless. Remember when Peter comes to Jesus and says, how often do I forgive my brother? And Jesus says, he says, how many times do I forgive my brother, Lord? And he goes, seven times? And you understand Peter's giving a good theological answer. He's going, seven times seems like the perfect number. Like that's perfect forgiveness. I've done it seven times. After that, he needs a smackdown. Like that's what Peter's thinking. And then Jesus goes, I tell you not seven, but 70 times seven, which is his way of saying, you're way off the mark. Like, don't, don't go do math. Don't, don't go do math and be like, okay, well, I'm going to tally out 70 times 7. That's contrary to love. Love keeps no records of wrongs, right? So tallying out, like, that's wrong. Don't do that. Like, you forgive unending is what Jesus is getting at. You don't do math. I mean, could you imagine uh, the disciples were very simple, very much like us. I could imagine them hearing that 70 times 7 and Peter's going over to Matthew. Hey, what is that? Hey, can you give me the, can you give me the total? Like, I'm going to keep, a, I, I need to get a notebook now and keep a log. Like, no, that's, that's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is telling him to put a number on it is the wrong thought. You just keep forgiving. You just keep forgiving. And, and the way that I once had it expressed to me is, well, how often do you want God to forgive you? How, you should do that for others. How often do you want God to forgive your errors your ignorance, your blatant sin and rejection. How often do you want him to do that? Well, you should do that for others too. That's a great barometer. If it were easy, it would not have been followed with the, admoni- with the admonition. If caring for the idol were easy, and if admonishing the idol were easy, it would not have been followed with the admonition to have patience with them all in 1 in Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 which I would remind you of, it says, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been, uh, it wouldn't have been, uh, he wouldn't have said that if it was easy. If admonishing a, a lazy brother were easy, he wouldn't have said, be patient. Right? Patience is one of those things that you're often told by pastors not to ask for. Right? Because God tends to develop that in you. So when you ask for it, he's going to put you in situations where you require patience. But I would tell you the opposite. Ask for it. Just be ready to work. Ask for it and be ready to labor to get it. You want to you wanna be good at loving people? Ask God to make you good at loving people. And then... 
Be ready to work to love hard people to love. Be ready to do so. Consider Paul's own experience with admonishing lazy brothers with Mark. Remember, Paul was on missionary journeys in the book of Acts with Barnabas and Mark. And he gets frustrated with Mark because Mark is sickly and homesick. And he's, Paul probably interpreted that as Mark is lazy and doesn't want to do the work. Right. Remember his own experience with Barnabas as they traveled together and then they came to an impasse in Acts chapter 15 verses 36 through 39. And Paul eventually has to get over that. Paul eventually has to get over that so much does he get over it that he eventually writes in Second Timothy, send me Mark for he is useful to me. That guy, that kid that was idle, that I didn't like being around, that I had to admonish, that I had to... Paul learned what it meant to be patient with somebody who needed to be encouraged and lifted up in the faith, somebody who needed to be admonished and brought along. He learned with patience. Christianity moves slowly in discipleship. There are people who grow like wildfire real fast. And you get excited about them. You go, yay, they're growing so quick. And then there are people who grow really slowly. And they grow very, very slowly. And you have to admonish them and encourage them. And then there are people who grow real fast and they get lazy quick. They grow real fast. They get used to the surrounding and they go, ah, I just just didn't make it. I I slept in. I didn't do these things. I didn't, you know, I just haven't read my Bible. I just been, you know, I just haven't done. And that's, those are the brothers that you look at and you go, look, I love you. Like, let's, like, why don't you read them? Like, let's read them. Let's, let's study together. Let's meet. Let's hang out. Let's talk. Why don't you come to this? Why don't you do this thing? Why don't you, why don't we work together? Who are you praying for? How can I pray with you? How can I? And the truth of the matter is in Christianity, sometimes you have to encourage the idol. You have to admonish the idol and warn them like, hey, you're getting lazy. Get moving. You have to encourage the weak or crutch the weak and pull them along. And sometimes you have to carry the broken. Carry the people who just can't do it. Sometimes that's the way that it works. And that's the way that the admonishing works. Now, first, their brothers. Second, do not grow weary in doing good. Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, we read this morning. Let the one who's taught... Uh, The word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, so he he shall also reap. Sorry, I memorized that in King James when I was little. So it like jumps back and forth in my brain. So therefore he also shall reap. Um, Verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap from the spirit eternal life. I want you to note the extremities there. He's not talking about just drift. The one who sows to the flesh reaps corruption. They die. The one who sows to the spirit reaps eternal life. This is not just drift. This is salvation he's talking about. This is salvation. We want to be those who sow to the spirit because it is in general who we are. Verse nine, and let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household 
of faith. Paul repeats that same admonition here in verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians. Do not grow weary in doing good. And he's emphasizing that because it is easy to grow weary in doing good when you've got idle people around you. When you've got people who don't put in the work. It's easy to grow weary with them. It's easy to grow tired. Idle people will frustrate people who have genuine needs because those people who have genuine needs won't be able to get the needs met and they will exhaust the people who are contributors. People who live disorderly lives are an exhaustion to others. So Paul tells us, admonish one another Admonish one another, encourage one another, walk alongside one another. Remember, these phrases are all phrases that are done alongside. They're all done with the preposition para, alongside the person. You're supposed to admonish the person from alongside, call out to them from alongside, exhort them from alongside. You're supposed to do these things while you walk with them and don't grow weary in doing good. He tells you that because it's easy to grow weary in doing good. It's really easy. Because doing good is exhausting. Doing good takes work. And it takes overlooking things. And it takes, it takes walking with people. It takes calling people to stop doing what they've been doing. And to walk a different direction. And sometimes it takes sitting there for a very long time. Waiting for them to turn around and pay attention. I can't tell you how often. As a pastor. I've had to wait. For someone to just come around. Years at times. Years. You'll sit there and you'll pray for them. And you'll every time you see them, you'll admonish them or encourage them or talk to them. Every single time. And you'll, you'll just for years, spend time waiting for them to come around. And you'll finally, one day, they'll show up at your door and you'll be eating. And they'll be like, oh yeah, so that thing that we've been talking about for years, yeah, I, I did that. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And they'll be all casual about it. Or they'll show up at church and Bible study and you'll be lit up and super excited and they'll wonder why. And you'll think, because I've been sitting here waiting for you to show up. Waiting for you to make the step. It is constant. Christianity is a long walk. It is not a short sprint race. It is a long walk up a hill with a group a lot of whom get distracted by bugs. Have you ever been on a hike with children? Ooh! It's the worst sound to hear when you're trying to get to the top of something. Ooh! Walk over here, you see them. Look at the fairy house, Daddy! Baby, there's a, there's a whole view from the mountain at the top. Like, we want to see the whole view. But if you don't come now, we're going to get tired you're going to be exhausted and then you're going to get to the top and be like, oh, I'm so tired. I just let's save some of this energy and get up there. Like you're thinking as the father, I've got something beautiful to show you. I've got some incredible view for you to see. And you are distracted by the stick bug. By the stick bug, which we have in Brazoria. Which we have in Brazoria. Or a leaf that happens to be seven pronged. Look, daddy, it's a seven pronged leaf. 
I'm glad that you noticed nature, baby. Let's keep walking. There's a whole mountain top view that I want you desperately to see. And yes, these things are nice on the side. And yes, these books that are, that are easy to read are fun to read. And yes, yes, these entertaining things that we do in our world are entertaining. But there's something so much more for you to see. Something so much more for you to look at. And I just want you to make it to the top without being exhausted. So let's walk, let's go, let's move, let's walk. And, and you wait and you, what do you, but you don't, you don't yell at them like that because that ruins the hike. So what do you do? You stop and you look at the fairy house with them and you go, yeah, I've seen these things before. They're great. Stick bugs are awesome. I've seen them. They're pretty incredible. Yeah. Look at that seven prong leaf. Yeah. There's a thousand of those all over the tree. Yeah. I, I see it. That's yeah, great. It's amazing how it fell down from the tree like that. That's incredible. Like this is Yes, it's beautiful. I'm so glad you're noticing these things. There's more to see. Come on, let's keep going. Let's keep going. This often happens when you're trying to disciple somebody and they show you a book that is okay at best. And you go, I'm glad you're reading it. I'm glad it's encouraging. It's an uplifting book. I'm glad that you're reading it. Okay, yeah. This one, we can read this one over here. And then you hand it to them. They go, too much. And you put it back, right? And, And these things happen. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. You continue to do good and serve people and love people. Do not grow weary for in due time you will reap a harvest. That is a promise from the word of God. In due time you will reap a harvest. Now, I want to give you two examples from the Old Testament just to ponder for a minute. One is Isaiah, court prophet, saves Israel multiple times. People repent multiple times in his ministry. He is a prominent, powerful prophet that everybody seems to listen to. And he has a very successful ministry. The other is Jeremiah, who spends 49 years preaching and has maybe, maybe one convert. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due time you will reap a harvest. Jeremiah is in the book. His harvest is reaped. Everybody hears Jeremiah's words. He's been preserved for thousands of years. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have come to faith in Christ because of Jeremiah's work. In due time, he reaped a harvest. Though in his lifetime, 49 years of struggling ministry and waiting for people to come around. I just want to encourage you with those two examples. So that you would remember that in due time, you reap a harvest does not end here. Your harvest ends in eternity. Your reaping bears weight in eternity. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, after he's talked about resurrection and life and salvation, he says at the end of that chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Sometimes when you're with a brother and you're admonishing them, it can feel vain, but it's not. Your labor is not in vain. It will reap a harvest in time. Your labor is not in vain. Then three, we, we have nothing to do, is what it says here. It says here in verse 14, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, 
take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. So this idea of having nothing to do there in that verse is analogous to verse 6 where it says keep away. And remember when we talked about verse 6, that means giving space. Giving space to the person. Moving away from the person so there's some room, some space between you and them. This word means don't be synonymous with them. It's the word, it's the Greek word where we get our word synonymous. So don't, don't be synonymous with them. Don't mix, don't mix give and take with somebody who is disobedient. Don't mix and give and take with somebody who's disobedient. So the question then arises, John, you're telling us to be patient with people and then you're telling us to give them space and, and not mix with them. How long are we supposed to be patient, right? Like that's the question that should pop up in your head. How long are we supposed to be patient? So let's dig into that question here with these passages of Scripture. There's a difference between 1 Corinthians 5, which is the, the, the passage that should have popped into your head, 1 Corinthians 5, where it says do not eat with the person, don't even associate with the guy, kick him out of your church. The guy that's sexually immoral, publicly sexually immoral, kick that guy. There's a difference between that guy and a guy who's simply in idleness, simply walking in disorderly lifestyle. There's a difference. So let's look at what the differences are here. It is in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 11, it says, it is actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you and a kind of that that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. As, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of, the sincer of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or revival, or reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So there's some differences in this passage and in 2 Thessalonians 3. There are some. Let's consider them. First, this, this passage is regarding someone in whom there is no repentance. This person is not even admitting that they're wrong. And this is a blatantly public sin. Everybody knows about it. Everybody sees it. And they're just kind of you know, like awkwardly, like, hey, it's good to see you, buddy. Nobody's confronting him. And he is unrepentant in wicked sexual immorality. 
So first, there's no repentance. Second, this is grievous and public. This is a grievous public sin. Like Everyone knows, everyone sees it, even the world sees it and goes, that's not cool. Even the world sees it. And it's not, it's not, they're not looking at it. Understand the gravity of this. They're not looking at the church going, oh, that's not cool for the church, which tells us we can't do that. No, what they're doing is going, we don't even do that. We don't even do that thing. So this is grievous in public. And then this is also specifically a sin that in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, there's a list of sins that put you out of the kingdom of God, that if these are practiced in your life, that are, if these are a general practice of life, these specific sins, then they are ones that make it evident that you're not a Christian. These sins, they're listed in chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, where it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And as such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This admonition in chapter 5 to expel the person comes followed by a list of things that if they describe a person's general pattern of life, mean that that person is probably not a Christian and will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I want to be clear, this is a general pattern of life. This is practices. These are present tense, constant things. They're things that describe the person's essence of who they are. They're not things that they fall into once in a while or things that they struggle with or things that they are repenting against. These are things that this person has accepted as who they are and who they should be. This is different than the guy in 2 Thessalonians 3 who is lazy or who is struggling to do things. That person needs you to walk alongside them, to give them space, to not mix with them. Don't mix with them, but give them space. So Paul admonished the brothers. So how long? So again, the question is, how long are we to be patient? First, recognize the severity of what's going on. There is a time when patience is exhausted. When patience is done and you address something as a discipline issue, and you walk with that person, but there comes a point when they get expelled. When you're going, you are unrepentant. You, we have come to an impasse. You do not believe in Jesus. And now I'm going to love you like a non-Christian. But I'm also not going to mix with you. I'm not going to be a part of this. You're not gonna, I'm not going to sit with you if you continue to call yourself a brother in Christ. I'm going to continue to step away. Like there's that. But in 2 Thessalonians, there's love and admonition. Remember how long Paul admonished the Ephesians for three years with tears. In Acts chapter 20, verse 21, he says, I was with you and I admonished you for three years. With tears, I admonished you. And I continue to do so. So he, so how long? Years. It can be years that you admonish somebody. Idleness and disorderliness, unlike 
blatant, unrepentant, massive, grievous public sin, idleness or disorderliness is answered with patience, space, and exhortation. It is answered with patience, space, and exhortation. He says here, for what end? To what end in verse 14? He says, take note of the person, have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. That he may be ashamed. I want you to note, it is not mocking or harshness that leads to shame. It is not mocking or harshness that leads to shame. Mocking and harshness do not soften people, they harden them. Mocking and harshness do not soften people, they harden them. What softens people is love. Love and brokenness and being broken on their behalf is what softens people. Indeed, that's what Jesus does for us. That's what Jesus does for us. Oh, there's the rebuke of get behind me Satan with Peter, right? That stern rebuke that he gives. But did you notice that he keeps Peter around? And that in the very next couple stories, he's right with him, right next to him. It is not mocking or harshness or sternness that softens a person or that makes them shamed, makes them repent and shame, you know, gives them contrite and contrition. That's not harshness and sternness and mocking. Don't do that. What does that is being broken for them on their behalf showing them love, showing them love. Remember Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Later on in that verse, he'll go down and he'll talk about dealing with the world. He's talking there about dealing with each other, but he'll talk about dealing with the world. And at the end of that passage, he will say, love your enemies and in doing so, you will heap burning coals on their head, which is bringing them to repentance. It's bringing them to repentance. It is a loving, tender patience and brokenness that brings others to shame, that brings others to contrition. It is not a stern anger or harshness that does that. But it is a loving tenderness. Consider the amount of time that the Lord walks with Israel in the Old Testament. Thousands of years he walks with them. And yes, a lot of what he says sounds harsh. But he's standing next to them the whole time. How I've gathered you as chicks under my wings. He has been with them the whole time. So we've got one, they are brothers, not enemies. Two, do not grow weary in doing good. Three, we've got this passage, have nothing to do with them and what that means and how we're to be patient. And then it says, do not regard him as an enemy. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Someone, an enemy is someone, the word enemy there, the word that's used is someone who is in opposition to Christ. That's the way that that word is used. Someone who is literally in opposition to Christ. This is, this is not someone who is in opposition to Christ. This is a believer who is struggling to walk in obedience. 
This is a believer who has a disorderly life and needs somebody to come alongside him to help him and to exhort him. This is a believer who is struggling to walk in an orderly manner. Remember this great phrase that I had a pastor tell me once. Just And if you've never heard me say it, you're going to hear it now. Remember this. You're in a body of believers. You are surrounded by sheep. And remember, sheep bite. Sheep bite and they hurt. Have you ever been around sheep? They're obnoxious animals. You can pet them. You can, I've worked on a farm. Like You can pet them. You can do these things. They're not like dogs. They're not sweet. They bite you. You can be giving them food and they will bite your fingers. They will bite your hands. And then they'll headbutt you because you're standing there. No other reason. They will bite you. Sheep bite. And remember, you are one of the sheep. So you probably bit some people. And some people bit you too. Welcome to the community of faith. This is faith. This is what it means to walk in community. Do not regard someone as an enemy but warn him or admonish him or exhort him as a brother. Side note, you don't admonish or exhort people who are in opposition to the gospel. You don't admonish or exhort people who are in opposition to Christ. Someone tells you that Jesus Christ is not Savior and Lord, that is not a sheep. Someone exemplifies that Jesus Christ is not Savior and Lord, that is not a sheep. You don't admonish that person. You call them to repent. You tell them sin is evil and it's killing them. And the only way to salvation is to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They need to repent from sin and believe in Jesus. You can be patient and loving and kind. But you plead with non-believers to salvation. You admonish those who believe. So how do we admonish? Well, we admonish people through proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in, first in Colossians 1, 28, through proclaiming the word of Christ. And we admonish people through the word of Christ and singing and in poetry in Colossians 3, verse 16. We're supposed to sing and make music in our hearts to the Lord and with each other. We're supposed to admonish each other through the word this way, through song and through poetry and through beauty and through words that exalt the the Lord God Almighty and through singing. And we admonish one another through goodness and knowledge in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. That's how we admonish one another. That's how we admonish the believers. Now, this is all in answer to anxiety-causing issues. This whole book has been an answer to anxiety-causing issues. What causes anxiety among people? So what, what is it that causes anxiety among people? He ends his book here in verse 16 by saying, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Lord be with you. Remember in chapter 2, he talked about how some of you are getting anxious. You're getting nervous because of various issues, because of false letters and things. So what is it that causes people anxiety? Well, I think first you can say idle people in the community cause anxiety. Verse 7 
and 8 of chapter 3. It says, nor did we eat anyone's bread. I'm sorry, that's at verse 8. For you yourself know how, we, how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. So idle people cause anxiety. Idle people cause burdens. People who are lazy and disordered cause burdens on the community. That's one. Second, rebellious brothers cause uh, anxiety. Seeing people who are rebellious, rebellious people in general, and rebellion in the world, seeing this can cause anxiety. If you don't believe me, turn on the news for 10 minutes. You only got to watch it for 10 minutes and you will feel nervous and anxious because rebellion is at work in the world today. Lawlessness is at work already. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 11 talks about this. Lawlessness is at work in the world already. Don't worry. Christ is going to answer that. Christ is going to come back and answer that. Christ answers the the idle person. He answers them through the admonition of the saints. He answers the world through his actions, through his second coming, through the return of the Lord. Third thing that causes anxiety is false teaching that seems to attract a lot of people. False teaching that seems to attract a lot of people. Mega churches. YouTube prophets. TikTok videos of people who are espousing nonsense. A lot of people watch those things. So in me, it causes anxiousness because I'm going, maybe I should be watching. Maybe I should, what is, am I missing something? Because it's just the crowd is there. So maybe I'm missing. And so in me, who doesn't gravitate towards those things normal, there's anxiety. And then for the people who attend those things, they are racked with anxiety. The people who watch those things are racked with anxiety. And why? Because they're false. Like now, just to be fair, and so I don't get any emails from the podcast, not all mega churches are evil. That's not what I'm saying. Please understand I'm talking about, in general, large crowds of people gathering to hear nonsense. Not every church is that way. So, now that I've made that caveat, we can move on. We've got these anxiety-ridden people all over our world who feed off ta-da. Ta-da! Like, they feed off the new, the fresh, the ta-da. Yeah, the Word of God is not ta-da, it is truth. So we answer that with the Word of God, the false teaching. And, and Paul mentions that in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when he talks about don't be quickly shaken or alarmed, either by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, something that's false. Don't be shaken or alarmed by it. Don't let your anxiety go up. And then the fourth thing that causes anxiety is persecution and uncertainty. Why do you think it is in 1 Thessalonians that he reminds you that you will not be caught unaware? You are not going to be caught unaware. Don't let these things shake you. You're not going to be caught unaware. You're part of the kingdom of God. You're not going to be caught unaware. So what's Paul's answer here at the end to remind you of this letter of peace amidst anxiety? Here's the, here's the ending. Here's his, his admonition to you. Now may the Lord of peace... This is himself. May the Lord of peace himself. This is the only time in scripture where that construct is used. The Lord of peace himself. This is the only time in scripture where that construct is used. So it must be pretty critical. So let's think about it for a minute. The Lord of peace. 
Jesus is the Lord of peace, meaning first and foremost, He is peaceful. He is peaceful. I was once asked, do you think God is happy? And I had to think for a long time. And the answer is yes, by the way. Yes, God is happy. Do you think God is happy? Yes, God is happy. He is happiness itself. He is also happy. Same way, do you think Jesus is peaceful? Yes, Jesus is peaceful. He is at peace. He's not anxiety-ridden. Jesus can understand your anxiety because he knows you. He can walk through your anxiety with you. And indeed, he can feel the weight of your anxiousness and your depression and your pain. He can feel it and he shows it to us all through the Gospel of John. All through that Gospel. Every time he meets somebody who is struggling or in deep, deep sorrow, he feels it deeply with them. He weeps with Mary He reasons with Martha. He labors to love the guy at the pool at Siloam without embarrassing him. He defends the honor of the adulterous woman who's thrown at his feet, who has no honor, who who he defends and shields and protects. He even protects the uh, Pharisee that finds it difficult to follow in Nicodemus, never once outing him or making him feel like less than. He is loving and he is peaceful and he is gracious and he understands. Peaceful is part of who he is. Peaceful is also part of what he does. And why is he peaceful? Well, the triune God cannot be shaken. The triune God cannot be shaken. He can't be shaken. First, God cannot be shaken. Psalm 62, He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall not be shaken. He is the one in whom I find my security. Psalm 45, verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. So He is always He's always victorious, always on the throne, and he is always right. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 29, listen to what this says. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness, of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less 
will they escape if we reject who warns them from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He cannot be shaken. That's why he's peaceful. He cannot be shaken. Second, His word cannot be shaken. Why do you find peace in Him? Because His word cannot be shaken. In Mark chapter 13, verse 31, it says, The heavens and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 through 25, it says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, get this, through the living and abiding word of God. It does not die. It is living and abiding. All flesh is like grass, and all the glory like the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He is powerful. His word does not end. It does not fade. You can find peace in him and his word because he is not shaken. His throne is not shaken. His word is not shaken. Third, God's church cannot be overcome. God's church cannot be overcome or defeated. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 through 19, that famous passage where he talks to Peter and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, the rock being the confession that he made, not Peter, it's a double entendre, but on the rock being the confession that he made, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Just the two quick side notes. Gates are defensive. You're on offense, not defense. Just remember that. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. You are storming the gates of hell as a Christian. You are not on defense. You are on offense. Get to work. This is what we are. This is who we are. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is power of the church. The church will not be overcome by the world. It is victorious, not will be victorious. It is victorious because Christ has won already. And we are in victory. Verse or the fourth thing, God's children are preserved, but the Lord in Second Thessalonians three three. But the Lord will is faithful; He will establish and guard you against the evil one. John chapter ten verse twenty seven through thirty. My sheep hear my voice; I know them; they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. You hear that? They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them from my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 through 39. One of our favorite passages 
in all of the Bible. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you are his child, you abide forever. He will preserve you. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 says this, Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. God preserves his children. God is peaceful. Jesus is peaceful. You want to know how to answer the anxieties of life and the struggles, struggles, struggles of life as we have seen in 2 Thessalonians and in 1 Thessalonians? You answer that with an eternal mindset that is focused on Christ. He is peaceful. He is the Lord of peace. He is also the Lord who gives peace. John chapter 14, verse 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We have a, a little uh, four booklet thing back there in the back that, uh, that I printed for you that just has things about Jesus' peace being given to you. I would admonish you to pick that up and kind of go through it. Go through all the... It's just scripture. Just go through it, read those passages at some point this week, and be reminded that He is the Lord of peace. He Himself is the Lord of peace. He gives peace to those who are broken, even amidst turmoil. In John chapter 16, verse 33, it says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In Christ, we have peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Since therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace through God, through peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. Just let this rest on you. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He is peace. He is the peace giver. He is the one who gives peace. He is the Lord of peace. And He Himself will give you peace. He Himself will give you peace. Only trust Him. Repent. Believe in Christ Jesus for salvation. Trust Him. Trust Him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By His wounds, we are healed. He is salvation. Trust in Jesus for life. Trust in Jesus for peace. Oh Lord, we pray this morning that we...